From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In World War II, uranium workers across the West sacrificed their health so the Allies could win. In the small town of Yerevan, Colorado, people sacrificed more than their health. Radioactivity meant losing their homes. When your whole community that you grew up in, every street that you walked, every building that you went into is gone. You need some place to go back to. As the film Oppenheimer introduces new audiences to the Manhattan Project, we tell the story of Colorado's role. And as Congress considers broadening compensation for uranium workers, a conversation about the medical uncertainties. I'm afraid this bar out from an industry which began in the late 40s, we still have not satisfactorily answered the community's questions. Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are so many reasons to talk about uranium right now. Congress could expand compensation for people exposed as miners and millers. Meanwhile, the film Oppenheimer retells the story of the atomic bomb. And in Colorado, we're approaching 40 years since a uranium company town was wiped off the map. The federal government declared Yerevan in Montrose County radioactive. 800 people evacuated, and the school, grocery store, medical office, the swimming pools, the homes and trees were shredded and buried. Jane Thompson is one of those uranium evacuees. She gets former Yerevan residents together near that empty patch of ground to reminisce. I was curious if at the latest gathering this summer, the movie Oppenheimer came up. We live two hours here from the nearest theater, so I haven't even seen it yet. (laughs) You know, we definitely have had people coming into the museum talking about it. And I had a lady from Arizona do a U-turn right in front of the museum and come in and she needed a radioactive shirt and we didn't have any. You're talking about the Rim Rocker Historical Society, which operates a museum in nearby Nukla, and you sell glow-in-the-dark t-shirts that read, I'm from Yerevan on one side and caution radioactive on the other. I gather you not only have some pride for your history, but a sense of humor about it. Yes, we do have a sense of humor, and we do have a lot of pride. We don't feel like we need to be ashamed of our history, and I will never be ashamed of my grandpa. He was a kind, gentle farmer who became a miner to support his farm. Your grandfather worked in the mines during the Manhattan Project and on into the Cold War. Your father worked in a uranium mill. Um. The movie chronicles physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer's development of the atomic bomb and his later regrets about unleashing something so destructive. As much pride as your family has, uh, did the Yerevan workers who mined and milled 
come to have those regrets as well in terms of how that power was harnessed? No, I don't think I don't think they had regrets. I mean, they it, they were doing a job. Um, they were supporting their families. We have a memoir that was written by a lady who lived there during the two years of the Manhattan Project in Yerevan. And everything they did, they did for the war effort and for the boys overseas. And they celebrated the day the w- war was over, just like everybody else in the country did. Hmm. It wasn't until later they realized what they had been a part of. And I think certainly there was some sadness, um, but I I have never talked to anybody that had regrets. Talk about the sadness. What do you mean? Well, I think nobody wanted to see the Japanese people hurt, um, but also nobody wanted to see more American soldiers die. And really, they had no idea what they were doing mm-hmm. in Yerevan. They were getting up and going to work every day. That The mills were running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they didn't know what they were doing. So what were they told? I'm always fascinated by that, right? Because I remember at Rocky Flats here on the Front Range where they were making nuclear triggers, there was all kinds of rumors about like it's a Dow scrubbing bubbles plant. What were they told or did they just sort of embrace the mystery? Well, I mean, I don't know because I wasn't there. So I don't know what they were told. I know what they talk about and they write about is that what they were doing was for the war effort. People were doing things for the war effort all over the United States. I'm sure whether they were working in uranium, working on the Manhattan Project or just saving metal and using their war bonds, they didn't really probably have any idea what they were contributing, but they were all contributing and they wanted to bring their boys home safe and sound. My grandmother lost her brother in Italy, 19 years old, had just graduated from high school. (laughs) They were going to do anything they could for the war effort to bring those boys home safe. You talked about your grandfather being a farmer who then worked in the mines. Uh, Your grandparents moved to Yerevan when it was a very tough place to live. What do you know about their lives there early on? They moved to Yerevan on Christmas Day in 1939 because that was the only day my grandfather had off. They had three little toddlers. My mother was the oldest. She was almost five. And there was a baby on the way. They lived in two tents right alongside the river, the San Miguel River in Yerevan. It was called Tent Town. So everybody there either had a tent, a little trailer, travel trailer, or they threw up a shack real quick. There were only a few houses in Yerevan at that time. And um, they used one tent for sleeping and one tent for the kitchen and for living, sitting around, and they lived through the winter into the spring and summer. The baby was born while they were there. And when the baby was six months old, she died. The whole family had gotten sick and grandma always felt like it was from the water. But anyway, they all got sick and the baby did not survive. Hmm. And uh, they had a hard life. I have her little tent stove that she used in that tent and I look at it, I keep it on my porch and I look at it and I don't know how she got up and did that every day with four little toddlers. 
When you talk about the river water, the thought was that contamination coming from the mines around Telluride and Placerville might have had something to do with it. Well, where they lived at Tent Town was upriver from the Yurvan Mill. So it wasn't from the Yurvan Mill. And, you know, everybody knew that the mines and the small mills that were up around Telluride and Placerville were, they were putting things in the river as everybody was at that time. So I'm sure that some of those contaminants came down from there. I understand they had to use blackout curtains. Yep. So that enemy bombers wouldn't be able to see the town from the sky. And there were armed guards at gates outside of town. So did they also live with the fear that Yerevan might be attacked? When my my mother and her siblings talk about it, that was the feeling they had. They had a real feeling of of fear. They didn't know, but they knew it was the war effort. And I, I think there were probably other towns all over the United States that thought somebody could come in and bomb them. But they did. They had to black out their windows at night. You couldn't have lights on. And there were guards on each end of town. And you only went into town if you lived there or had a reason. And they were very sheltered. They were very self-sufficient. They had everything they needed there. They really didn't need to leave town. To hear their stories as I grew up was pretty interesting. And then when we got the book, that memoir, and that lady told the same stories, it was very interesting that they'd had the same experiences. Never knew They didn't know each other but they lived through those same experiences. So I really do feel like that's probably what they all felt. Uh, are you speaking of Hearth of War, a World War II memoir of Yerevan, Colorado? Yes, the yeah. Hearth of War is our memoir. It's yeah. all all we really have. There are, are, are very few photos of Yerevan during that time. Pictures just weren't taken. This is a book by Vesta Price Fitzpatrick for those who are interested in the history. Your experience growing up in Yerevan was quite different. You lived there as uranium was being mined for domestic power rather Mm -hmm. than war. And I understand, Jane, you really loved it in Yerevan. What what was there to love? Well, it was a wonderful little small town. Um, We had our school. We really never had to leave Yerevan for much. We'd go into Grand Junction once in a while, buy our school clothes or to get new shoes, but we could get things like that in your van. You knew everybody. If you wrecked your bike in a different block than where you lived, somebody was going to come out and pick you up and get you back to your, your mom, your home. It was a very close knit community. And, you know, it certainly had its flaws like every other community, but everything was provided by the company. It was a company town. Union Carbide took very good care of their um, employees and, They had baseball. We had a swimming pool. We had things that the other towns around us didn't have. I'm glad you brought up baseball because my understanding is that where you meet every year for the picnic is where the old ball fields were outside of town. Correct. Yeah. It is now the, um, it's a campground, a day use park. It was finally deeded over to Montrose County. Montrose County gave us a 50-year lease on it. So the Rimrocker Historical Society takes care of it. We've we've had it for 10 years, and we've turned it into a, a really nice place to go. So now people from Yerevan have a place where they can go and have a picnic, take their grandkids, they can play in the river. And it's just 
makes you feel like you've come home. And when your whole community that you grew up in, every street that you walked, every building that you went into, everything that you grew up is gone. You need some place to go back to. So we fought pretty hard to get the ballpark and, and we're very proud of it. There'll come a point where we can't take care of it anymore. And we're the children that got to grow up there. My kids went there to visit grandma and grandpa. So they have a lot of memories of it, but they don't have the passion for it that I have for it. Mm. So I don't know what will happen to it when we can't take care of it anymore. But for now we can, and we'll keep it going so that people have a place to come home to. Our guest is Jane Thompson, whose family helped settle, then had to evacuate Yerevan, Colorado. 38 years ago, because of uranium pollution, the U.S. government declared it unsafe. Every home, every building, heck, every tree was pulverized and buried. With new attention on atomic workers from Congress and Hollywood, we're checking in with Jane. She runs a nearby museum and gets former residents together each year near the ground where Yerevan once stood. Indeed, in 1985, Union Carbide gave eviction notices to all the residents of Yerevan. The town was to be razed because uh, it was so contaminated. Your mother and others still didn't want to leave. You say she only left kicking and screaming. Uh, Jane, was there no fear of radioactivity? No, there, there was no fear. You know, my mother had lived there since she was four years old. She went all the way through elementary school there, except for a couple of years in Norwood. And she married my dad right out of high school. And she raised all of us kids there in Yervan. She was very happy. That was her home. And she didn't want to go. I tend to um, differ with you in that the whole town was contaminated. The whole town was not contaminated. It was a company town. So they had every right to get rid of all of it. But I don't I I I don't believe that the whole thing was contaminated. You you grew up, though, around a lot of tailings, right? I mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> you you can understand you can understand for someone on the outside, Jane. Oh, trust me, I, I I give a lot of talks about your van. I share our history with anybody who will listen. And yeah, I, people ask me if I'm sick. And I tell him, no, I'm not. My mother was 85 years old when she passed away. She didn't have anything wrong with her except for a little dementia. Very seldom even took an aspirin. But my grandfather died from working in the mines. He had the lung cancer that there was no way he was going to survive. Mm -hmm. um, so it definitely touched our family. It touched my husband's family. It touched my sister's husband's family. The miners had a very very rough time but i don't know I, yeah. we weren't afraid of it and i'm still not afraid of it but i know a lot of people are well indeed most of those who did become ill were the underground miners the mill workers and when congress passed the radiation exposure compensation act in 1990 health care and money were provided for around 500 people who'd suffered lung cancer and other illnesses as a result of working on the Manhattan Project. Do you think that was enough? My grandmother was compensated for my grandfather's death from working in the mines, and it helped her live a comfortable life after he was gone. 
I think that the people who uh, deserved it got it. When older people come into my museum to visit and to see their history, and, and they tell me they worked in Yerevan, they lived in Yerevan, they worked in the mill, I always ask them if they've filed for compensation. And, and often they'll say to me, well, I don't have cancer. I don't, I'm not sick. Well, that's fine. But if you worked there for 15 years and you lived there through your childhood, maybe you should at least put in the paperwork and maybe, maybe there's something that you don't know about. <laughs> do you think you've, you've gotten any of them to do it? Well, I know for sure one of them. I got an email this year. He had come back to visit us and he went to his class reunion in Grand Junction. It seems like it was 60 years, maybe 65 years. And he was in his 90s. His daughter and grandson brought him. And we had a wonderful visit. He talked about Yerevan and how he worked in the mill after he got out of high school. He was just a very nice guy and it didn't have anything wrong with him. And he said that I don't have anything wrong with me. I'm not sick. But he was frail and he he probably didn't have many years left. And I told his daughter that I thought they should apply, that they should see if they qualified. And it would help make the, his last years a little easier. Hmm. And um, I got an email this winter that he had passed and that he had gotten that before he passed away. Wow. So he was able to leave that for his children. What a service you did there, huh? Gosh. Um, well, it's not a service that I've done. I mean, it, the money is there for them. And, it, and if they work there, they may feel fine. My great uncle died when he was 97 years old. And he worked in the lab in Yerevan. He worked in the lab in Rifle. And he worked in the lab in Grand Junction. And he didn't have anything wrong. He, didn't, he never did get cancer. But he deserved that, his, to have a little better quality of life in his older age. Well, and your description there shows how interconnected the communities on the Western Slope were around this work. I'll say that the Uranium Miners and Workers Act of 2023 seeks to expand who is eligible for compensation. You have saved seeds from the impressive flowers your mother grew in Yerevan. You grow them, I understand, now in your yard. Mm Mm-hmm. My sister and I both do. What do they look like? They're beautiful flowers. Uh, her hollyhocks, her marigolds, and her zinnias, she always saved her seeds. And then the next year, she'd plant those seeds again. So they've been planted and handed down over the years. But she couldn't stand to leave the flowers behind. She dug up every rose bush and iris, anything that she could dig up and plant in the new home that she was going to, she took with her. Was she allowed to do that, or did she have to do that kind of undercover? Oh, no, she didn't have to do it undercover. She was allowed to do oh, it. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And what is going through your mind when you look at, a, you know, those flowers in your own yard or your sister's? Well, they're very special to us. And to be able to pass them down to our our kids, um, my niece showed me, she took me right out to her garden and she showed me Grandma's Cosmos. These are Grandma's Cosmos. Look how big they are. And I, yeah, they are. It's very nice to be able to to hear my niece say that she planted some of grandma's seeds. And that's just a little bit of Yerevan that we keep going. The name of the town Yerevan is two things fused together. Yes. Do you want to do you want to explain uh, that for us? U R A from uranium and V A N from vanadium. Yerevan, uranium, 
vanadium. I camped out there this weekend and um, was able to talk to my grandson through FaceTime, my great-grandson in Alaska. And he said, Grandma, where are you? And I said, I'm in Yerevan. And he turned to his uncles who he was with and he said, Grandma is in Mayavan. So... (laughs) Your event becomes my event. My event in a child's mind, it does. I remember my cousins doing the same thing. We get to go to my event and spend the week. We're going to swim in the swimming pool. So yeah, your event is a special place. And this little grandson, this little great grandson, has been there a few times, and he knows exactly where it is. And it's his van. It's so. his van. Thank you for sharing your story. You're welcome. Jane Thompson is president of the Rimrocker Historical Society in Nucla, Colorado. She grew up in Yerevan, which was wiped off the map because the federal government said uranium operations made it unlivable. Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a doctor who's dedicated his career to caring for uranium workers. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Ghost stories can bring people of different cultures together. And that's just what Denverite is doing with Denver Fright. I'm Desiree Matherin. And I'm Obed Manuel, editor of Denverite, inviting you to an evening of scary tales on stage from a diverse group of local writers. We'll gather at Denver's Bug Theater October 25th. Get your tickets at denverite.com slash denverfright. That's if you dare. As we mentioned before the break, there's a new effort to get compensation for people exposed to uranium in mining and weapons testing in the U.S. The industry was concentrated around the Colorado Plateau. Dr. John Samet has studied the effects on uranium workers for decades. He's a pulmonologist and epidemiologist at the Colorado School of Public Health, past dean of the school. And Dr. Welcome. Thank you. Just briefly, tell us about the start of your career in this field. What was going on with uranium mining at the time? And, you know, what did you see in your clinics? My links to the challenges of the uranium mining industry really date to the start of my career at the University of New Mexico in 1978. At that moment, the uranium mining industry, uranium production industry was booming. And there were about 5,000 or so underground workers it was a public health issue, and as a pulmonary doc, uh, myself, my colleagues, we were seeing those miners, current and former, who had lung cancer. They were very, very high risk for that, often fatal disease, and also the other lung diseases that miners get. And so it was a clear public health problem and one that we saw you know, in our clinics in real life. Being in New Mexico... There were simply uranium workers who needed that kind of health care. That, that's what it meant for them to see a physician. I will say in 1978, the workforce was still relatively young so that these problems, the high lung cancer risk, the uh, risk for these lung diseases that minors get, they were starting to manifest, of course, and they continue to manifest. I mean, we're still following a group of New Mexico underground miners now for, we're heading for 40 years. And of course, they still have 
high mortality from lung cancer and from what we call non-malignant respiratory disease. Hmm. This has really been your life's work and these patients and their development of disease is something that you have witnessed over years and decades. Now, what about someone who lives in a uranium town but didn't work in the industry? What do we know about how they've been harmed or not by radiation? So there have been a variety of concerns about water contamination. Uh, there are concerns about the abandoned mines and what might be coming out of them or children going in them to play had other issues. I will say that researchers have taken this on uh, going back now about 40 years uh, with particular attention to whether there are effects on pregnancy outcome and child health. Unfortunately, there's just a, an unclear picture of what risks there may be. There have been studies that suggested effects on birth outcomes, and in fact, there's been a call for more research on that topic. So I, I'm, I'm afraid this far out from an industry which began in the late 40s, we still have not satisfactorily answered uh, the community's questions. I find that shocking. Do you find that shocking? Well, there are many shocking aspects of this story. I think probably beginning with the fact that we have uh, an epidemic of lung cancer in the underground miners that might have been mitigated with greater attention to their exposures decades ago. Mm -hmm. There was, I think, very limited attention historically on uh, communities. I will say the Navajo Nation, I think, has probably been uh, most directly engaged in trying to understand the impact of the industry, given uh, the extensive number of small mines uh, dotted across uh, parts of the Navajo Nation uh, early on. Yeah, I, I just want to read a statement from the Navajo Nation. They put this out this summer. It says, the Navajo Nation has borne the brunt of America's nuclear program, the cost of which can be measured in human lives, environmental devastation, and communities that are still suffering. Is there any effect on descendants of people who worked in the uranium industry? In other words, do the health effects get passed down in some way? So far, there is no clear evidence. And this has been looked at in the atomic bomb survivors uh, with a look at 70,000 births for children born after the bombings. And there have been studies now looking at whether genetic mutations are passed on, a study at Chernobyl that uh, did not find such evidence. So there's work in progress, and this has been a long-standing question going back well into the last century when we realized that radiation causes mutations. Mm. So you're speaking then of studies going on in Japan and uh, Ukraine. Um, earlier, Correct. we heard some skepticism from a former Yerevan, Colorado resident about the health risks of living in a uranium mining town. We also heard a lot of pride in one's hometown and one's contribution to winning World War II and the Cold War. Do pride and skepticism and maybe even nostalgia ever get in the way of the sorts of investigation and diagnosis and treatment underway? You know, my 
answer based on my experience would be no. Now, some of the early booms came along at a time when the health evidence was not so certain. I think people were caught up in the frenzy with the early uranium industry. And later when the industry boomed in New Mexico, I think uh, people saw the economics as the most critical, the development of towns like Grants, New Mexico, which went from a very small sort of county seat to a much larger town. Probably among the health consequences that that does not receive enough attention is the consequences of the bust and uh, having communities lose their economic roots and need to seek other possibilities to lose populations. So I, I think there's a lot to be said about the consequences uh, to communities that do not relate directly to what might come into the air or water because of the industry, but how communities are affected by powerful social and economic forces. Oh, interesting. Both the boom and the bust as having effects on And the bust. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, in the case of Grants, New Mexico, uh, follow-up industries included a coal-fired power plant and two prisons. Of course, this happened all up and down the Colorado Plateau. Mm -hmm. Or there's Yerevan, which was simply destroyed. Yeah. You testified in Congress during debates about whether and how to compensate people who worked in the industry. Why do you think government compensation is the right thing to do? Well, the origins of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act lie in the fact that the conventional compensation mechanisms were not working. And the purchaser of the uranium through 71 was the government. And the act uh, you know, begins with an apology. Uh, it originally covered uranium miners and certain groups, the downwinders. And you know, again, of course, now there's a, a call for further amending and expanding the uh, act. And, and let's talk about the proposal on the table right now. I'm just so glad you made it clear that the customer was the U.S. government. That's why you think compensation should come from the U.S. The Uranium Compensation Act indeed first passed in 1990, offering health benefits, in some cases monetary payouts for people exposed to radiation as part of their government work. About 40,000 have gotten compensated. The vast majority of the money has gone to the Four Corners states, Congress expanded who was eligible, as you said, in 01, and now perhaps another expansion. Why does this legislation matter right now? Well, it matters because there's a large group of aging uranium workers who are not covered. And of course, some of them had quite high exposures. And the risk for this group of particularly lung cancer is strikingly high still, as is the risk for other types of lung disease. The act, of course, also calls for expansion for some uh, diseases, kidney disease, which is uh, certainly a problem across the four corners states and may have some linkages to uh, exposures in the uh, uranium industry. So I think it's a question of whether we sort of see this through, this group of people who mine uranium initially only for the government later for the government, plus the uh, nuclear power industry, who will sustain disease. And really, the conventional mechanisms of compensation are not going to serve them. 
So just to be clear, these are folks who had not been covered. And is it also that they are diseases, the kidney diseases that wouldn't have been covered? That would not have been covered for all of the groups. That is uh, correct. So there's an expansion there. And then, of course, uh, an expansion of those who worked later in time. And probably extension is needed even to cover those who were initially eligible because many of them are still alive and experiencing the, you know, the diseases caused by their work experience. It's fascinating. This summer, researchers announced that fallout from the first nuclear bomb test, known as the Trinity test in New Mexico, reached 46 states. And that certainly included Colorado. What about communities today where the U.S. stores nuclear material or disposes of it? or the couple of places that are still mining it in the U.S. Um, Is the federal government doing a better job of protecting those workers now? I guess my first response is I hope so. (laughs) And, you know, conventional underground uranium mining is quite limited at this point in part to the marketplace. I mean, much of the current uranium supply comes from the stands, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Niger. So... You know, the number of uranium miners underground I, now, I suspect, is quite limited. You know, the questions of waste storage, of course, are very complex. And, uh, you know, we're still grappling with where high-level nuclear waste may go. And, there, of course, it was a several-decade effort to repair Yucca Flats in Nevada. And that is not moving forward. And for the low and mid-level so-called transuranic waste, a lot of that coming from Los Alamos, but from elsewhere is being stored at the so-called WIP site near Alamogordo, New Mexico. There's every effort made, but uh, things don't always work out. I know at the site in New Mexico, they had an unexpected upset and found many different flaws that led to underground fires and other problems. When you look at U.S. history, do, I mean, does a theme emerge? I don't know. When you when you think about Agent Orange, when you think about the kinds of things that people in service to the U.S. have been exposed to, and the government's rather slow reaction to helping them, do you see patterns? I, that's a, a challenging question. I I think that uh, there are examples, whether it's this one or we could. Look at the uh, burn pit exposure issue and the recent passage of the PACT Act to cover those who may have been harmed by the burn pits. Yes, these have all taken a while. And I think the challenge here lies in getting the right scientific research done, getting clear enough answers to motivate action, and then getting something done, uh, particularly if the Congress is the mechanism, it takes a long time. So the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act took time, and uh, we'll see what happens with these uh, revisions. I think it's fair to say that it requires both uh, enough science and then enough advocacy and then politicians who will take on you know, developing the kind of legislation that is needed. Uh, yeah, it's fair to say that The examples, Agent Orange, Burn Pits, perhaps Camp Lejeune, which is also in the PACT Act, or the uranium miners, it's taken a bit of a trail of 
disease, the, the visible trail of disease to motivate action. But Dr. Samet, you have to have lost patience in that time. I, I, I'm saying patience, T.S. You've, you have lost people you have cared for in that time, no? Sure. Sure. I, you know, I, fair, fair enough. And I, I think, you know, part of what I've always been willing to do is to engage in these uh, activities where somebody has to set the science in front of those who can make decisions. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to speak about these topics. They're important. Pulmonologist and epidemiologist Dr. John Samet of the Colorado School of Public Health. He's an expert in the health effects of uranium exposure. Speaking with us as Congress considers expanding compensation to these cold warriors and power providers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When a 19th century railroad worker lost his life on the job in Salida, he left behind his loyal spaniel, Duke. The dog continued to go to the rail yard every day around the nearby Monte Cristo Hotel. With a winning personality, Duke endeared himself to everyone, locals, train passengers, and hotel guests who looked forward to affectionate greetings from such a smart, handsome, and brave dog. Once a small child wandered onto the railroad tracks, Duke pulled him off and became a legend. When Duke died in 1902, the local paper declared, few there are among us who have as many warm, true friends as this faithful old dog. He was buried on the summit of Little Tenderfoot Hill, which for a few years was called Duke's Hill. And his memory endures today in Salida's Loyal Duke Dog Park, a motel now named for him, and in stories and memories of the town mascot everyone loved. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In an event called Mortified, people read from their teenage diaries on stage. I did this recently in Denver for Pride, and I'm going to do it again this Saturday in Boulder for National Coming Out Day. There are still some tickets available. For now, let's hear from someone I was on stage with in Denver. Here's Whitney Gaines sharing her adolescent journals with the world. Hi, everyone. Um... I'm Whitney. I grew up in Evergreen, Colorado. Woo! Uh, There was a lot of drama around me as a kid. My friends were always telling me that my life should be a mini-series. Don't worry, I'm in therapy. (laughs) So it was dramatic and confusing, and I needed an outlet, which is why I have a lot of dramatic and confusing poetry for you tonight mostly about the girls I had crushes on, but also about pirates. (laughs) I wrote my first poem in second grade, and I knew then that I wanted to be a writer, and I started writing lesbian love poems in fourth grade. April 5th, 1999. The prettiest girl in our whole school is Arabella Hop. And every time she smiles at me, I think my heart will stop. The guys all flock to be with her like bees around the honey. Big Larry's on the football team and Joe's got piles of money. And Tom is great at hockey. He's the hero of the rink. Bill Ferguson is handsome, or that's what people think. 
Jeff Williams is a ladies' man, as anyone can see. But out of all of those winners, Arabella Hopp chose me. So yeah, that was fourth grade. <laughs> um, I'm sure I raised some eyebrows in the teacher's lounge, uh, but as my hormones ramped up, the caliber of my writing went down. <laughs> uh, you be the judge. March 7th, 2006. Sometimes when I'm nervous, I stick my hands in my armpits and I smell them. Catch the reference? Actually, I keep them there as they complement spoon and fork and make spork stand out some more. I don't think God has a spork, at least not like mine. Um, so, <laughs> I had huge boobs in high school and my friends and I named the left one spoon and the right one fork and my cleavage was spork. Um, and friends would refer to Spork like it was its own entity. So Spork was a thing, and sexuality was becoming a thing too. Shortly after my parents split up, I gathered the courage to come out to my mom. When I told her, she said, we always thought it would be your brother. <laughs> More dramatic poetry followed. This is also March 7, 2006. My heart rips from my chest, pulled by the hands of those who look at things superficially, not caring to get below the surface. Oh, how I ache in this broken body of mine. I cry, not for the norm, but for new, bleeding reasons. <laughs> I'm so tired of it all. Endless rain showers, mood swings, X-Files paraphernalia that I can't use because the last seasons of X-Files sucked. <laughs> the blackened night, of course, it scares the little children. I am that dark. This is how my heart feels most of the time. Womp womp. But sometimes things did go my way. Did anyone else meet their first girlfriend in their driver's ed class? Uh, master drive really came through for me. That's where I met Elena. She was an adorable nerd who loved the show Firefly, bad horror movies, and hot topics, so we had a lot to bond over. <laughs> she also had a ton of friends on AOL Instant Messenger, which thoroughly impressed me. We were obsessed with Twilight, so naturally, I had to write a vampire love poem. March 9th, 2006. Her eyes like the cool burn of fire, tracing her fingers along my cheek. She sets my neck to the right, exposes her prey. I am what she desires, what she loves, 
what she fears, what she hates. <laughs> oh, but for her desire, I would die so sweetly. And how? But her cold, scared heart does not want me like her, fears me like her, fears I would leave. Gasping, she takes my soul into her mouth. Gasping, I beg her to make me what she is. But she restrains herself. She wipes her mouth. I sob, I beg, I whimper, I sob. She does not want to, but oh, how I wish for it. <laughs> Wishing, gasping, praying, begging, crying, <laughs> dying, bleeding. All for the girl with the cold, pierced eyes. Okay, so vampires, um, but I also promised you pirates because we were exploring the seas of lesbianism. <laughs> April 1st, 2006. Arg, a pirate I be. If I had hangers, my dress would be hanging up. But alas, those I lack like a pirate's life for me. Where is the bird on my shoulder? Polly wanna piss off? <laughs> then you can have a cracker. My eye patch doesn't cover just my eyes now, which kind of sucks. My bandana waits on my bedside table for its next usage. My poor, poor sword lays hilted. Cardboard swords still have feeling, still cut. Well, not really. I pillage, I plunder, I steal, but I don't rape. I think I would know if I raped. Don't you think so too? I pirates, we be together. Arg, mateys, give me a golden tooth. Things didn't stay gold for long, though. Elena's ex was still around, and I could smell trouble in the water. April 14th, 2006. Why is it that I long for things that break, things that sputter and die, sputter, sputter, die, die? <laughs> Leave me alone, great monster. I did not come to grovel at your feet. I merely glimpsed a sign of danger and curiosity killed me. Meow. <laughs> the sign of danger proved true and Elena told me she loved me on AOL Instant Messenger and then immediately dumped me on AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> because she couldn't get over this ex of hers. So I had to write some poetry to make her jealous. She was a brunette, 
So my revenge poetry focused on the opposite, blondes. <laughs> May 29th, 2006. Peroxide blondes, hello? <laughs> Peroxide blondes and razors. I'll choose the blondes, thanks. My hair is coming out in clumps. Oh my, I shall make a wig out of it and name it Ignacio. <laughs> Where is my peroxide blonde? I would like her, Sam I am, but I'll pass on the ham. I'm discovering the finer sides to random bouts of vegetarianism. Like tofurkey, tofu, shaped like a turkey, golly gee whiz. I took my Barbie with me to the mall. Santa, I want a peroxide girl to hold my hand. Don't you know that's gay, little girl? Yes, but peroxide girls are the best. All caps to really twist that knife, you know? Since drama was in my blood, Elena and I would get back together and break up and get back together again. Um, Elena and I didn't stay together much longer, but those driver's ed bonds are tough to break. We're still great friends and soon we'll be roommates. <laughs> you know, the kind of roommates that write letters to each other that historians will read and be like, they're just best friends. <laughs> And these days, I'm an award-winning writer and an educator, so some things improved, though you won't find as many horny pirates lurking around. Whitney Gaines reading from her adolescent poetry on stage at Mortified in Denver. I'll be on stage in Boulder this Saturday in honor of National Coming Out Day. You'll hear me decipher the code I wrote in to hide being gay. Tickets at getmortified.com. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to my friends and colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm here with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.